welcome once again to the Irish in Sweden podcast and you're particularly welcome if you're one of the lovely people that supports this show because I was going over there recently and uh, kind of realised that if it wasn't for the wonderful Martin Hessian and the great people at Veerstrom's Pub this podcast probably wouldn't exist anymore because they've been generous sponsors almost from the very start and uh, I'm very grateful to them for their sponsorship but the way this survives long term is getting more sponsors involved lads and getting yourselves involved in Patreon or getting involved on Swish or something like that because uh, eventually it's going to get to the point where somebody's going to offer me money to do something else and I'm going to have to either cut down this podcast or cut it out completely so if we're going to keep making it get in touch there patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm Swish you can support on 123242166 or you can email the Irish and Sweden podcast at gmail.com if you want to be involved and lads still waiting to hear from the big companies right we know you're out there there's loads of you uh yous are up there with the data centers and yous are coming in here through enterprise ireland and board being tourism ireland right what might be a reasonably small amount of marketing budget for you is going to make all the difference to keeping this podcast going right and one of the things that struck me boys and girls was that now, this is one of those things where you think, well, I make the podcast for the Irish and Sweden, so obviously everybody knows it exists, right? I'm not that dumb. I've been around for a long time now, and you realise that, you know, sometimes these things just exist. Even people who know me well and who know you well haven't heard of it because it just doesn't come up in conversation. They're not on Facebook as much as you and I, and people have very little to do with So, um... I was, uh, I was kind of astounded to discover recently, though, that uh, the legendary Dara O'Brien, the great stand-up Irish stand-up comedian, is on his way to Sweden, and I had no fucking idea. Now, I don't expect promoters to be out there going, "Okay, let's see what media channels are out there to reach Dara," you know, to reach with the, the news that Dara O'Brien is playing three gigs in Stockholm. I don't think that's going to happen. But I'm amazed that you know somehow that nobody has mentioned this to me at all, you know. But um, and of course, I reached out them and as usual promoters just completely ignore you so that would you know you'd assume that he's selling tickets to somebody but it was weird that i hadn't heard anything from the irish community um i was i met two lovely finnish friends of mine last week because they were over here from helsinki watching trevor noah in what they're now calling uh the the, the trevor noah arena which is uh, to you and me in stockholm is known as globin but dara's coming over he is doing uh, three gigs in Sweden. On June 16th, he's going to be in Lorenzbergsteatern in Gothenburg. In On the 17th of June, he's going to be heading down south there towards the E6 to Malmö, uh, Neustiatern. And then on the 18th of June, he's going to be on at Sheenatiatern here in Stockholm. Now... A couple of years ago, I went to see him. Uh, I got a couple of tickets. I can't remember if somebody was generous enough to, generous enough to give them to me or if I bought them or what it was. But uh, my wife and I were supposed to go, and she couldn't go. She had something with the school that she works at. And I just brought, like, a lad I played football with. And I thought, okay, you know, Swedish Hufflet, he's he, he won't enjoy this. Like, you know, he's not going to get the reference. And I've never seen anybody laugh as much in a hobby. He sat beside me howling laughing. And uh, he was a young lad who, he was born here, his family came here from Somalia, and he's, I've never seen, like I say, tears running down his face laughing. And I sort of thought that this was going to be, you know, something that would sort of appeal to, you know, niche Irish people, or you'd have to be able to, to understand the cupola folk together. But no, Dara's show is absolutely brilliant, right? So even though his promoters haven't responded to my emails, and friends of Dara's haven't responded uh, to requests to get him on the podcast here and talk to him, we'll still give him the plug, right? Even though he's not contributing the way you should be on Patreon or Swish, or like Martin at Veerstrom's. Actually, we might even go into to Veerstrom's before the, the gig there, or maybe even after it, and have a beer there. 
but yeah so the 18th of june in stockholm the day before that in malmo and the day before that in gothenburg and i'm getting this information from dara right he spells o'brien o-b-r-i-a-i-n Dot com. So Dara, D-A-R-A. Uh, so go there and you'll find it. And there's links to where you can buy the tickets for those shows, right? So I suggest you get out there and you go and see that. Now, Bloomsday is coming up as well. And uh, I was in touch with Connor Habib there who's coming over. He's going to be doing a gig. I think it's on the 13th of June at Scala Theater, not too far from my little studio here uh, in Stockholm. So he's going to be doing a, a reading there. I think it's at half past six on the afternoon on the 13th. But during the first interview here, I'll check that out for you, right? I'll come back with a little bit of information about uh, about when that's going on. But he's going to be talking about Ulysses, about reading Ulysses, because uh, you will have heard the conversation on a previous episode before I went to the Olympics or maybe it came out during the Olympics there in February where I spoke to the wonderful Stephen Farron Lee and we spoke about Joyce and Connor may not be able to fit in an interview before he gets here he might not even be able to fit in an interview while he's here I'll try to go to the event and see if I can get a chat with him a fascinating character has a great podcast of his own uh, that's really, really popular out there. But I'd really love to hear a little bit more about Joyce. Uh, I'm hoping actually to get Ragnar Almqvist. Ragnar is uh, the son of an Irish mother and a Swedish academic father who grew up in Ireland and actually wound up as uh, one of the secretaries at the embassy here. So he was a fairly senior diplomat here and a great goalkeeper for the Stockholm Gales, who will be well remembered. He's also uh, He was very involved alongside Spuds and Sill uh, with the whole Bloomsday sort of a thing. And... Um, yeah, so I wanted to get him on or just get somebody on to talk about Bloomsday coming up. And of course, Spuds and Sill are going to be doing a few things. So rather than me actually talking any more about it, I'm going to bring you the first uh, interview of this particular episode. And then I'm going to go and actually look up the details of this thing about Bloomsday because I've just realized I spent about fucking 90 seconds spoofing because I don't have the uh, the details to hand, right? So this week, the first interview this week is going to be with Mr. Phil Martin. And this is one of those things that somebody on Twitter tagged me and said... You know, it was about, you know, a business thing. And I was going, okay, hang on a second. This is an Irish man who's making tortilla chips that are now available in Sweden, right? And I had to sit down. I had to put the kettle on to get my head around this one. But sure enough, it turned out to be true. And Maeve, his PR person, got in touch. And uh, yeah, so there, there is a man called Phil Martin and a company called Blanco Nino. And uh, they're making tortilla chips. And I just I had to get in touch with them. And we... We sort of, you know, we've been passing each other by like ships in the night recently, but I finally got to talk to him there a few days ago about the whole idea of it and how to break into the Swedish market and that kind of thing. And it's one of those fascinating stories. A lot of the time when you speak to people from Board B or from Enterprise Ireland or from Tourism Ireland, you just get these great stories of, of entrepreneurs and the ideas that they have and how they turn them into reality. And Phil's is one of them. You'll find his produce. I'll look that up as well. But I know that Kaisavai has some, solarhall.se has them as well. And he mentions one or two other places in the course of the interview um the tortilla chips themselves are brilliant need i say anymore and no he didn't send them to me i actually went and bought them for research purposes myself they're extremely tasty stuff altogether but uh, here's how they wound up on the shelves of some very high-end uh, exclusive supermarkets in sweden but they're well worth the spend Um, your products and how you decided or why you decided you wanted to get them into the Swedish market of all things because you've been at this for is it six or seven years now making tortillas and tortilla chips and that kind of thing um, mid 2015 so uh, yeah just over just over seven years you know, just over seven years 
Um, but I guess the Swedish market, we, I think, the, well, I think the Swedes in particular are recognized for being um, people who appreciate quality, um, in, uh, especially within the European, you know, um, collection of markets and so on. So it was always going to be um, one of our first kind of ports of call outside of Ireland and the UK to kind of look to the, the Nordics and uh, Sweden and, and Norway and um Finland and Denmark and such but um no it's a really we I think we know our customer well there are people who are fairly well traveled people who uh, like to buy the best they can buy people who have an appreciation for say provenance sustainability uh, clean label products you know and that that's a very large proportion of the consumers and you know demographics within sweden so it's a, it's a natural marriage of company and market really you know mm -hmm. sweden sort of ticks all the boxes i was sitting here nodding on zoom as you were saying all those things you know but yeah. how is it phil for for somebody who's in, who's not involved in business or export or manufacturing or that kind of thing you can't just go right i'm going to sell my stuff in sweden and just sort of you know come to a supermarket with a box and go here stick them on the shelves out that will you how does that process yeah. work to get to get into the market <laughs> you know someone actually said to me there recently that um I, that i seem to have the approach of like jumping out of the plane with the assumption that the parachute will you know and magically, uh, magically appear around me. <laughs> so, so um, no, I, you generally start with, you know, that's where we're going to go. And then you figure out, okay, well, this is how we do it. You know? Um, so with this, it's not easy. It's not easy. Logistics is, is uh, more complicated now uh, and getting more complicated. It feels like every other week uh, with just the way the world is in terms of, in terms of everything from energy prices, the cost of fuel, um, the just demand for lorry drivers and containers, and it's it's certainly not easy. But um, we've we've had amazing support from the Irish uh, Food Board, also known as Board Beer. They've been you know uh, immeasurably uh, supportive and, and helpful in the kind of journey to get into the, the Swedish market. So much, much credit to them. We we would have done like a market um, visit, oh maybe back in 2017, where we visited a lot of the retailers, met a lot of buyers, kind of got a, got a sense of um, of the the area, uh, the, the Stockholm in particular, and and then I have a buddy who lives over there. He's a he has a burrito bar called Tom Tom's in uh, Gothenburg. Um, who uh, who would have actually way back worked in my uh, Mexican restaurant in Dublin? Um, so, um, but initially it was kind of reaffirming that okay, we weren't completely mad, and that you know Sweden was a good place to to work and sell the product and all that, and all that pretty much quickly, well, stacked up pretty quickly, and then we we were over visiting some customers uh, for the food service business, like for the development of like the restaurants of the business, whereby we'd sell, say the soft tortillas to restaurants, bars and hotels. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of, we were looking at um, the market with an eye to launching the tortilla chips, uh, which is the most recent product we've launched. Um, and we met this guy who was then doing a graduate scheme with Board Bia, um, John Roach, 
and he just met, left a very strong impression on myself and uh, another director of the company, uh, James Howie, our sales director. And we we just felt that we needed to get him on the team. You know, he was just he was very uh, ah, just had his head screwed on. Very sound guy, very diligent. Um, he didn't really need to do anything for us, but he was doing so much. So mm. we just said, look, this is someone we'd like to have. And then oftentimes when you, when you find great people, you know, you just try and find good reasons to hire them. You know, you might just uh, just to get them on the team. Um, but um, I, I don't know if that really answers the question in full, uh, Phil. You yeah, know. no, it does because yeah. like it's one of those things. Like I'm thinking of you coming over here, right? And this Irish-looking gentleman, and you're saying, "Yes, I have the best Mexican tortillas and tortilla chips." Do people here not look at you and go, "Hang on a second, I, I, I'm not getting, you know, putting one and one together, and getting two here"? <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing, you know? yeah, yeah, it's one plus one equals jam. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well. Like the, the product usually speaks for itself, you know. Like it certainly, it can be quite confusing uh, when when I rock up. Um, but but we we go to pretty extraordinary lengths, Phil, in terms of what we're doing. Like we we use like some of the best uh, corn you can get, non-GM whole white corn. It's it's cooked overnight in these big bloody vats. Mm. Uh, so corn, water, and lime. Um, it's in volcanic stone ground uh, using our hand carved volcanic stones from Mexico. And then the tortillas are shaped and baked. And um, that slow nextimization process, so the process of cooking the corn, um, is quite unique in, in that very few people really want to do it anymore. So most tortillas in the market are made with rehydrated corn flour, basically. So it's, it's like for, for the Irish you know, listeners, it's it's like you know sachet mashed potato as opposed to you know spuds from down the road that are which as we all know is a crime against humanity absolutely disgraceful yeah <laughs> disgraceful behavior so so uh, so oftentimes the product speaks for itself and then anyone who kind of researches the company you know it's very easy to follow the journey of where we've come from and you know our, our desires and ambitions to be to really celebrate Mexican food um, and cuisine as, as best we can and uh, and just kind of uh, as much as possible kind of pay homage of sorts to just the various characters who've helped us along our way. Um, you know, we've been incredibly graciously um, kind of, well, educated, I'd say, educated, kind of shown the way by so many different uh, chaps in, in Mexico. So, um, you know, yeah, we're we're yeah we're lucky we're lucky to have a really fantastic product not without trying incredibly hard but it means that when we turn up on the door doorstep and you know when the product is put in front of people it kind of speaks for itself in terms of its uh, its quality um but it's rare as well that we just turn up you know without any prompts we usually there's usually a bit of prep in advance they usually know what they're expecting um but no i, I think the product speaks for itself in terms of its, if its quality, in terms of the process, in terms of the ingredients, and uh, it's quite a rare, a rare thing in the European market, and uh, thankfully, you know. 
So when you're sitting there with somebody from a supermarket or from a restaurant or a hotel chain that's into Mexican food and you snap up your black briefcase and you take out your product samples, what's the reaction of people when they taste them? Because, you know, and not to be in any way offensive, but I'm sure they have, you know, maybe 10 people coming through their door every week with something different. Have you had those sort of positive reactions going, okay, I get why this guy is trying to sell me this? Yeah. Um, well, the, like it's a, the, the whole process is quite a staged process. There's a, a staged in the sense of uh, step one, step two, step three. It's mm. it's not just you know arrive up with the suitcase. Um, you know, there's a there's a long kind of courting period to yeah. to get, get to get to the date. You know, um, so there's a. Uh, the suitcase is brown as well. Um, just <laughs> details. Yeah, details are important here. Details, details. Um, so, but no, the um, usually look. You, you, we we're very we care about what we do, but we're also very or say professional in how we approach these things. So when we go to a supermarket, we've done all our research. We know how 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 much everything is selling for on the shelf. You know what our comparative you know competitor products would be. Um, we know how the market is performing overall, the market in which that retailer uh, is in. So we can we can show them whether they're you know uh, growing below index versus you know what the market is doing. And like generally speaking, pre-COVID, you know the Mexican food market and food service, so restaurants, bars, and hotels was way outgrowing the pace of Mexican food. Yeah, growth in retail and retailers actually. Why, why was that, Phil? Is there anything specific behind that? Is there? Well, yeah. Well, a lot of people can come up with different, you know, hypotheses and so on. But my my uh, my hypothesis would be that you look at where the growth is coming from, and all the growth is coming from new generation, authentic Mexican foods using corn tortillas, premium quality corn tortillas, and um, really simple. Um, short menu offerings high high quality more premium so where, where i think it's coming from is that you have this move on the high street uh, towards premium quality uh quantities and uh, tortilla chips in in restaurants bars and hotels and that's where all the growth is and the the say older uh generation of uh like tex-mex uh, Mexican food is very much in, in decline on in like the Mexican food service sector. So like you know, terrible cardboard tortilla chips stacked with 17 inches of melted cheese, you know, isn't really what's in kind of driving the growth. So, um, but that type of Mexican food isn't really reflected, and that quality of Mexican food isn't really reflected in the retail environment. So, when you look at what's driving the growth in food service. Uh, that type and, and quality of offering is just not available in the retail do- domain. So when we go into a retailer, we're like, look, lads, like this is this is where what's happening in food service. This is everyone knows that food service leads retail in terms of market trends and so on. So when you look at your shelves and how your shelf is performing versus the wider market, it's underperforming. And we think it's underperforming because it doesn't have a complete category. And then we kind of go, look, guys, you know, if you look at what a, a normal category looks like, you have a good, better, best um, category segmentation. So, and that's usually um, defined by like the quality of the packaging, price point, product quality, you know, branding, and all these all these different things. Mm-hmm. And in most parts of the supermarket, whether it be chocolate or dairy or biscuits or bread. It's very clear 
um, good, better, best. And most of the tortilla chip category, it's all packaged pretty much the same way. It's all pretty much the same kind of triangles, which is different variants of dust on top of them. Um, and then, and you know, it's it's basically just different color bags. But fundamentally, the process is very similar. So mm-hmm. we're going, look, you have a good and better right now in terms of your category, but you don't have a best. And to really bring in all those people who want you know, a true Mexican experience in terms of quality of food, in our case, tortilla chips right now. Uh, you need to complete that category, you know, good, better, best. We're the best of the market. Um, and, you know, look, uh, we'd love to work together. So it, it's a no brainer, really, for these guys. There's usually, there's usually quite a bit of pushback initially from retailers because we are, you know, considerably more expensive um than every other you know tortilla chip on the market mm. um but we we've, we've proven the case uh, over and over again that when it's put on the shelf you know the the category grows incremental sales grow you bring in new customers it's it's a win-win um but you know i think when any brand tries to stretch the category a little bit mm. you know the price point and, and so on there usually is a bit of resistance initially but mm. Um, how, how hard yeah. are those discussions feel because one of the things about scandinavia is that people will pay for stuff if it's worth it if they perceive it as being worth it so like we've had so many irish companies coming over here and they go you know what? and we're cheapest and everybody goes well fuck off because we don't want cheap we want something that's really good uh, do yeah. you, but are the discussions still hard when you want x per bag of tortilla chips you know is it still hard to sort of you know to get what you really need to be able to make a profit and do this at a profit um like uh, every buyer would not be doing their job if they didn't try to push back, yeah. you know, on the company and go, ah, go on, give us a few extra quid off the bag or, or a yeah. box or whatnot. Um, but you just to say, to be very, like, we, we don't, we don't operate on the basis of, okay, we're going to price it this, assuming that we're going to have to bring it back to this price. Because hmm. I, I always think that if you, if you allow, um, if you go into negotiation, and you basically compromise immediately or give something over just because they asked, it basically shows that you actually didn't have to give them the best price. So it sets a precedent going forward to basically just, okay, the second I ask, I'll get, a, uh, I'll get an additional price improvement. So like we, we give out our best price to the market based on you know, recommended retail price on a margin that you know, the retailer should be very happy with given their category norms for said margin and so on. And like the amount of money they make per pack, and then um, you know, then allowing for logistics to to Sweden, you know, management of the account and all the, all those various bits and pieces. So, uh, no way. Okay, every you know, every buying conversation is it's not just there's the price. Thank you very much. There is a bit of back and forth in terms of explanation of why it's this price. There's a bit yeah. of back and forth in terms of okay, what can you do to support the product on on shelf and ensure people buy it all these kind of things you know and how has that process been in terms of because the places that your products can be found and thinking of Kaisa Valley, which is just up over my shoulder here which is you know a really good quality food shop they don't sell there's probably only better and best you know they don't the good you can get at your local supermarket what do they ask you to do so would it be sort of in-store stuff will will i see you know sort of stands with with your packaging on them or, or your branding or how do you support that in the market then so we we did quite a bit of like what we call geolocated um, social media advertising. So anyone around the store, you know, would have would, would have been kind of would have seen uh, kind of 
product pictures and, and the likes, advertised product pictures. We, we haven't done um, a whole lot of sampling yet, but we will be doing a lot more sampling now that kind of COVID uh, is, is kind of moved on. Uh, but really, a lot of that is um, it is sampling and store. It's product led. It generally, we we a lot of our means of building brand awareness um, is through product. So whether that be the influencers we we work with in Sweden uh, to kind of sh- uh, to kind of share product online and so on, and the um, uh, yeah, the giving away a product in store to the customers. That's mm-hmm. how we generally uh, support store listings or store accounts, if that makes sense. The, the influencers you work with, Phil, would they be, you know, the Donald Skeens of this world working in the food space or would they be people who have, you know, followers that you want to get at? Uh, it doesn't just need to be a Donald Skeen. It, it could just be someone who who has a strong following, who also just likes food. You know, they don't need to be a um, an out-and-out food influencer. Yeah. You know, a lot of, a lot of like, your um, kind of health foods, kind of, or just lifestyle influencers, you know, they'll, um, they'll equally, you know, be delighted with a, a box of tortilla chips to nibble away, nibble away on on a Friday evening. So mm. it's, it's, there is, a, there's the end, like, you know, you're not necessarily going to be sending it to a gamer, you know, yeah. a gaming influencer, but it's really down to the influencer in question. There's, um, there's you know, you can, you can tell very quickly whether they, it would, it would chime with them, whether it suit them, yeah. if they're into like sustainability, if they're into uh, clean products, you know, it's, uh, but it doesn't need to be just food influencers. Is that, um, you know, for an alpha like me who hasn't been sort of involved in influencer marketing or that kind of thing, is that a difficult thing? Because like it's one of those things that you really can't be without. I think it was the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics a few years ago. There was a bunch of journalists and influencers sent to a media day by Discovery. And the journalists were standing there going, fucking hate these kids. And those kids are just sort of the future. And I'd imagine, like, you know, are they a big part of getting your brand out there? Um, it is. It's very important. It's very important. It's like, a lot, a lot of people do give out about influencer marketing, but I actually kind of see it as being nearly a, it's almost like a democratization of market or of advertising space. Yeah. You know, so rather than buying, buying a billboard somewhere, you know, you're, you're finding someone who has an audience that you, you share mm. and you work with them. But we, we generally, well, we actually haven't paid any influencers. We don't, we don't go down that route. Mm. And so we just try to, um, we try to just, uh, support and a share product with people who think uh, would have a um, a similar customer base, and you know we're we're still a very small brand. So if they if they you know talk about it or share the product, that's fantastic. But mm-hmm. like we we don't have the budget really to be getting into large paid influencer marketing, like, ten grand yeah. a post kind of shit. Oh well, yeah, exactly. Like you 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 do hear something incredible stories of guys just getting paid absolute fortunes to put up one post and, yeah. and the thing is it, it supposedly it pays it supposedly it pays you know yeah. um like when you're looking at someone who might have you know 10 20 million followers yeah. you know um like you you as a friend of mine was saying recently there's um oh, i can't remember who the influencer is but an irish influencer um, in particular in this case and they had things like uh 35 million followers yeah, um, and and he was like to think about that. He goes, uh, all the radio stations in Ireland 
uh, and all the news stations in Ireland can only get at, you know, X people. Mm. And he goes, all those media organizations, this is all, this is how many, how many staff they have. Mm. And then this one person on Instagram effectively has a, has a broader reach than yeah. all of those news organizations and radio, you know, organizations. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really, uh, it's a different world we're living in. in well, to put it in perspective, right, from the JNLR, which is the radio ratings come out, 300,000 for a national syndicated radio show in Ireland is considered, that's that, like, that's where you need to be, you know, in order to be popular with advertisers. And here you're talking about a person with a hundred times that, you know? Yeah. And if you think yeah. of, you know, what you would pay for an ad on the Late Late Toy Show or what you might pay for an ad in Sweden during the Eurovision, like, Ten grand is probably cheap enough for whoever that lad. Oh was. yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's a uh, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible when you put it in, when you put it in those comparative terms. You know, yeah. it's it's really a it's a different it's a different thing now, yeah. and it can be it can be hyper focused because you're not just broadcasting to everyone. You're broadcasting generally to a community of people who follow a certain individual that has kind of maybe shared yeah. principles of product and and. Um, yeah or like lifestyle and so on. So it's, it's, it's a very, very uh, focused kind of targeting. It's also that trust as well, because it's, it's much easier to trust a person that you feel you know from Instagram, for better or worse, than, you know, say, yeah. the New York Times. And you go, okay, well, if an ad's in the New York Times, you go, well, obviously it won't put any outside that they probably would, you know. But could I ask you, Phil, because you didn't start doing tortilla chips and tortillas and, you know, going and getting sort of volcanic rock to grind your corn and that kind of thing just for the crack. Where does your personal love of and interest in Mexican food come from? Did you have one of those St. Paul on the road to Damascus experiences at a burrito <laughs> bar somewhere? Um, not too dissimilar. Not too dissimilar. Yeah. The clouds parted. <laughs> a burrito <laughs> came flying yeah, from the sky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Burrito to the nostril. Um, no, I, I was traveling. I was traveling Mexico and and you, the US. It just it really struck me just how how incredible Mexican food was, particularly uh, tacos, like and, and uh, street food was, and just how easy it was I perceived it to be in terms of like service and and so on, and how. Uh, you know, mind blowing the flavors were at the time, you know, in terms of just, uh, would it be uh, just a really simple taco with, you know, uh, some meat and some salsa and, and uh, maybe a coriander sprinkled on top and just like just flavor explosion mm. and really clean um, and it's very cheap. And it's just, it just, this felt like an obvious thing that, you know, anyone in Europe would, would just uh, jump at. And it was just going to blew my mind that, this wasn't something that was available in uh, in Ireland, and then I kind of said, "Fuck it, you look. I'll try to do it myself." You know, um, and then obviously no one in, in Europe was really making proper quantities at the time. And uh, but when wheat tortillas were prolific, you know, you get a good wheat tortilla anywhere really in Europe. Mm. Um, there is there's like there's different degrees you know you can take it to another level and it's kind of kind of looking at the moment but um but generally the, the standard of a wheat tortilla is, is pretty decent you know you can get good quality so i said feck it look we'll just we'll we'll make burritos we'll start there and um we launched a burrito bar went really well um i then was kind of looking at okay well uh we're kind of two years in now do we do we keep going with this or do we, you know, do we try something new? Um, and I kind of, I really wanted, I really wanted to give the Taqueria a go, uh, but no one, I still couldn't get 
quantities myself. So I said, Fuck it, let's make these things ourselves. It can't be that difficult, you know? Oh my so, God. Uh, so the amount yeah. of sleepless nights since <laughs> that thought crossed your mind. <laughs> yeah, aging, aging in dog years. Yeah, yeah. But, so I, um, anyway, I was like, look, I'll go back. I went back to Mexico then and I did like a, a trip just to, and it sounds very orderly in hindsight, but it was far from it. But I basically said, look, I have no idea uh, what the hell I'm doing here. So I'll start in the field and work forward, basically. So I was chatting with this tour company and I they did bespoke tours. And I said, any chance you could bring me to a corn farm? We'd just love to learn about you know how corn is grown. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, that's one of the more unusual requests we've ever had, but you look, we'll give it a, we'll give it a go. So then we... And the bring us out to the corner. I met these uh, this, these guys, and just I uh, they can they can probably tell that I was just naively enthusiastic about all things, you know how how the harvesting worked and different varieties. And ended up spending quite a quite a long time with them. Um, and uh, anyway, so I learned all about the, the harvesting techniques and the different varieties of corn, and and then the, kind of went from there to learn how that the corn was cooked and ground in this. Uh, cooked in particular this process which is well over 3,000 years old and it could be a lot older than that but um called nextimization which basically transforms corn corn from being relatively indigestible to being very um well very digestible and nutrient dense whereas prior to being cooked it's quite nutrient trapped yeah. so um so the, the nutrition is there but your body can't absorb it until it's been cooked properly yeah so and then learned, you know, how to carve the stones, and that probably wasn't necessary at the time. But I was just kind of interested in it. Like, so fuck it, you may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's that. I've never heard that one, Bill. That's, uh, that, that's you've that's been hanging around with the wrong people. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, um, I, uh, yeah. So I worked the whole way forward, uh, and then I realized, okay, this is not quite as simple as I thought. I thought I'd, you know, throw a pot in the corner of the kitchen and hey, presto. Mm-hmm. You know, tortillas. So I quickly realized, you know what, we're going to have to actually launch a tortilleria to make the corn tortillas for the taqueria. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then to do that, I realized that we needed a fairly large bag of cash, which we didn't have at the time. We were running a lot of people who knew what they were doing. You know, one one lone tackle obsessed lunatic cannot be running this show. Uh, <laughs> and then we needed a lot of customers. So I, I just said, look, we'll, at the time, crowdfunding seemed like the silver bullet that would, you know, basically we'd, we'd announced what our plan and our, our vision, for want of a better word, was for the business. And if we could uh, raise enough money uh, and build enough awareness, we'd both find our customers, you know, recruit some people and, you know, gain the capital to do it. And, and thankfully, it was, it was Ireland's then most successful ever crowdfunding campaign. We raised more than double what I thought we needed initially. Um, we ended up needing a multiple of that, um, ultimately, to get the whole thing off the ground. Um, and uh, yeah, then we, we launched in um, we launched eventually in, in the factory in Clomel there in 2015, and we're, we're now selling across 16 European markets. I still haven't gotten around to the Taqueria, but you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all in good time, all in good time, all, yeah. all in good time. Yeah, we'd love to. 
Love to one of these days, but, um... If we look at the Swedish market, because again, I was just fascinated, A, by the product and the, the love and the dedication and the knowledge and everything that has gone into it. I just find it, it's incredible what you've done. And like you say, you know, you, okay, you can be content with good or you can be content with better. But, you know, in this case, I would strongly recommend going for best. But you, you broke into the Swedish market now. You're in these high-end food stores. What's the ambition for you with selling these things in Sweden and Finland and Denmark? Do you want everybody over here makes tacos the night that the um, the Eurovision is on kind of thing? Do you want to be a staple part of that, or do you want to be a special occasion thing? Um, we want to be at an accessible premium in the market. Uh, it, it will it will always be that little bit more of a special. Uh, treat as opposed to you know maybe three times a week or you know once a week or um, so taco fry tag isn't it that's what we call it Ta- taco uh, Freda, yeah that's all yeah and um, um, but like our ambition really is to be um, to be the the Mexican food brand in, in Europe that defines the premium category both in supermarket shelves and restaurant kitchens and that spreads quite a bit beyond where we are today. Um, so look, it's we're, we're we're very early days, uh, Phil. We're very early days in what we're doing here, uh, but no, certainly our our ambition is quite a bit beyond where we currently are. Uh, so so we're we're kind of just building our foothold of sorts, and uh, with our intention to really grow quite substantially beyond that, and and hopefully you know become a staple within a large you know portion of the. Uh, kind of Swedish kind of household market um, you know it, it's always going to be that ex- bit that bit more expensive so you know it, unfortunately it's not going to be for everyone but um, but for the the few tortilla chip aficionados out there you know uh, will uh, hopefully be become the, the staple position in the supermarket trolley well, Phil Martin, I wish you every success with it. It's a fascinating story. It's an amazing success already, and it sounds like you're only just beginning. So uh, hit us up when you're over here, and you might have a bowl of tortilla chips with us, and we can do a live taste of the next time. But for now, thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks, Phil. Good chat. Chad. That was Phil Martin there talking about the joys. It's amazing. You, you never even consider it. You wouldn't even think of, you know, I wonder how these things are made. I wonder who makes these things. And then you, you get into a conversation with Phil Martin, who clearly loves Mexican food so much and who clearly knows what he does. I think we probably spoke for about another 20 minutes outside of the interview uh, talking about, you know, food and business and that kind of thing as well. And it was just a fascinating thing to, to find out a little bit about, you know. Listen, in the meantime, once I was sticking that in there, I went in and I found out that uh, Conor Habib is on on the 13th of June, right? So he's on the 13th of June in Stockholm, and then the 14th, I think he's down in Copenhagen in Denmark, and it's I think the talk is called Ulysses for Psychonauts. Take from that what you will, right? But uh, Conor will be down there. He'll be talking about it, and I'll try to get into one of those events and see if I can have a chat with him as well. Our good friends at Spuds and Sill, the Drama Society, they were on here recently talking about their production of Cupid War Skirts. I see Niall Balf is on the private members group there on Facebook. They're will be something at Ronell's Antique Valley Arts, which is a bookstore here in Stockholm. Uh, for many years, they have been marking Bloomsday on the 16th of June. So there's going to be sort of an all-day event there, and there's going to be some readings and that kind of thing. But uh, hopefully, I'll be able to um, 
dig up some more details about that and bring them to you before the event. It's always difficult when you have a weekly podcast, right? You've noticed this little, you know, every now and again, like with um, Connor's uh, appearance is going to be on a Monday, I think. Don't quote me on that. Don't come at me waving your cam- uh, your calendar with different week numbers. And I go, oh, I'm sorry, that's in week 21 or whatever. I haven't a fucking clue. Um, but yeah, you think, oh yeah, oh okay, okay, oh, but that's on the same day. So if I was to manage to interview Connor next week sometime and then put it out on the 13th, it wouldn't give people a whole lot of notice in terms of being able to buy tickets or whatever. Because let's face it, not everybody listens to this podcast the day it comes out. Or you should, you know. That's you know, I'm not judging you here, but you probably should. Everybody can't be like Kevin Carroll, seven o'clock in the morning, putting the coffee on and listening to it, you know. But um, yeah, so it's a little bit pointless. So let's, if you do have something, if you do have an event coming up, and that applies to, you know, the people in the state agencies and the ambassador and to Spuds and Zill as well, a little bit of uh, fram for holding, as the Swedish call, a little bit of advance notice wouldn't be too bad, lads, because uh, let's face it, I've had enough time keeping up with what I'm doing every bleeding day without running and actually having some sort of a calendar. Actually, Sophie Murphy's calendar, if you haven't seen that, she makes a calendar for the Swedish-Irish community. And all these things should pop up in there. But I suppose, um, I don't know if that's sort of constantly updated or if it automatically goes into your calendar once you subscribe. I must check with Sophie and see. Now, there is another interview on the way, but uh, before we do that, if you listen to last week's podcast, you would have heard Miranda Mudde Eriksson, who was on talking about her new album, Tank Um, and uh, also about how she has translated some of the songs of the, the legendary Rory Gallagher into Swedish. And as we speak, as I'm recording this, her Instagram story yesterday was mad. It was all to do with arriving in Ireland and getting on a bus and going to the festival of Rory Gallagher's music that's on above in Ballyshannon in County Donegal. And I'm in touch with her. So you're getting the odd uh, direct message there on Instagram. And she was just amazed. She got to Ireland. Oh, it's so beautiful here. And I was out on Twitter there saying, if anybody knew in Ballyshannon where she could find a trad session to go to, because, you know, she's a folk musician herself. She spoke about that a lot last week in the interview. And I just want her to get that authentic going into the pub, tour from afar, yes, in June, because it gets that fucking cold. Um, and, you know, I've seen a bunch of musicians just sitting there and playing for nothing other than the love of it and maybe a drink at the end of the night, you know. So um, by the time this comes out, obviously she'll probably be on her way back home again. But it's going to be fascinating to see if she gets up and manages to do one of her translations of Rory's songs or something like that as well, you know. But it'd be great to see because it's a young woman who hasn't been to Ireland at all. And she's going there sort of on a mission, on something of a musical pilgrimage. So it'll be great to hear uh, how much she enjoyed it and what she did and, you know, she what her experience at the, the festival there in Ballyshannon. But enough of the arts, because we'll be getting back to that with Ulysses in the future. And we've had a little bit of business there from Phil Martin. So now it's uh, time to go to one of the other of the legs on the three-legged stool that is the Irish in Sweden podcast. And we're going back to talking about sport. And... Um, there was a little bit of bad news, I suppose, last November, I think it was, as a, the soccer season here was coming to, the, to an end, uh, as Sean O'Shea wasn't going to be extending his contract with AIK. Now, Sean is a soccer coach who will go through his entire background in the interview and that, and he came over here, and it was brilliant to have somebody like him at his position, you know, in uh, Swedish soccer, to come over and be working with some really, really top international players at uh, one of Sweden's top clubs. Uh, but it was also fascinating to to get the background of that, right? Now, really unusually, for somebody who goes to a lot of the AIK games, I go to pretty much all the Allsvenskan games that happen in, in Stockholm, if I can, 
Um, and but never actually bumped into Sean. Never met him in person. Now I know he was out with the Stockholm Gales lads. I think he might have played the odd game with them when they were playing in Corpen. And uh, he was also knocking around, you know, when they were playing games, doing a little bit of coaching with them and that kind of thing. But he was one of those people whose names came up a couple of weeks ago when I was looking for suggestions. Owen O'Connor there at Enterprise Ireland suggested, he goes, look, you have to talk to Sean. It's like peeling an onion. And he was right. So myself and Sean uh, sat down and we had a really great conversation about how we ended up here, how we ended up leaving here. There's a little bit, I'm not going to call it bitterness, you know, I think there's a little bit of disappointment about how things wound up here, but he has a lot of great things to say about about soccer, about sport in general, and about his heritage, about growing up Irish in an Irish family in England, and what that means when you go back to Ireland on your holidays, and when you come to a place like Sweden as well. So uh, let's have a little chat with Sean O'Shea, and get a bit of football in perspective now as we reach uh, the summer here, the middle of the summer here in Sweden. I think your story is one that will be very, very familiar to many of the Irish people in Sweden listening to this podcast because you grew up in an Irish family in Huddersfield, surrounded by all things Irish, by Gaelic football, by Irish music, by Irish culture. Um, who has that turned you into as a person and as an Irish person? Interesting. You know, I think when, when you're growing up and um, you're sort of immersed in all this stuff, you just think that it's normal. It's You just follow what your parents do as a child and everything you do, like going to church and going to Catholic school and being an altar boy and playing Gaelic football and stuff. It's just normal for you. It's only, I think, when you get old, you become a, a late teenager and you kind of realise about you know what culture really is and how people grow up because you just assume as a kid that everybody grows up the same. Hmm. Realise kind of how proud you, your parents are and your grandparents are of where they come from and how they've tried to instil the same culture and beliefs into you even though you live in a completely different country because obviously I was born in Huddersfield and brought up in Huddersfield but we were brought up very much to think that, yeah, you're born in England and you're from Yorkshire, but you're very much Irish. And it was just kind of drummed into us. But I suppose by the time you realise what was happening, it was too late. And I mean that in a nice way. It just, yeah. it already happened, you know? So, so there was it, never it was a risk a of you becoming Declan Rice and playing for Ireland and then never. switching to England? <laughs> never in a million years, honestly. If, if, I'd have, if it had been as successful as I wanted to be in my football career, if I hadn't got a call from Ireland and I had from England, I still wouldn't have taken it because I'm, I'm very much of the fact that, or the, the thinking that, you support your hometown club, and for me, that's Huddersfield. And you support your country, and for me, that's Ireland. And it's as simple as that. Never change. Did you feel like an outsider growing up in England at all because of your Irish culture and heritage and how important it was to you, Sean? I think th- there were elements of it. There were moments where, where you did feel like that because if, if Ireland ever played England at something, whether it was football or rugby, predominantly those two, you know, if Ireland were to win, you would be told by your English friends, oh, well, you're not Irish anyway, so you can't celebrate. But then, you know, if Ireland were to lose, then you'd get, you know, you'd get the mickey taken out of, yeah, you're Irish, this, you're Irish, that. Yeah. So there was an element of that. But I was quite lucky, I think, where we grew up, because if you went through the register of the people in my class at school, it was Mac Sheffers, O'Sullivan's, O'Shaughnessy's, Higgins, uh, Norland's, Fallen's, you know, it was Higgins. So we were all kind of in it together. We, we went to the same school, we went to the same high school, we played football together. We played Gaelic football together. Uh, we went to the same church, you know, as, as kids. So there was elements of it in school, but um, you know, it was just what it just how it was. It was just sort of band that that happened, and you became accustomed to it because it just happened all the way through your life, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was weird as well. I always joke about it because 
you could feel like a bit of an outsider at home. But then when you would go home to Ireland in the summer to see your family, they'd say, oh, the English are here, you know, so you couldn't, you couldn't win either way. Jesus, yeah, I mean, that's, especially when you grow up in England, it's one thing our kids growing up here in Sweden and, oh, you know, the Swedes are here. But, like, there's, there's, it's a very loaded thing when you say the English are here to the likes of ourselves yeah, coming it. back, you know? Did you feel, especially in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> that was my next question, actually. Did you feel the sort of, you know, the, the harsh end of that? Because, like, I, I know there are certain people, the Irish writer Paul Howard has written some brilliant books on football and many other things. He moved back from England to Ireland when he was a sort of a primary school child and he was given a terrible time over his act like did you feel that there was real animosity to you or was it just taking the mickey kind of thing no i I only ever felt it as taking the mickey we never we never had any kind of problems any trouble i think it was just it was just an easy gag when you came home in the summer from you know you're not seeing anyone for a year it was just an easy joke like but we were always welcomed with open arms when we went home whether we were in in cork where where dad's family are from or whether we were in mayo and galway where mum's family are from we were all it was always like a second home for us like it was great yeah uh, where did the love of football come from, Sean? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, was, it was strange. Um, well, not strange. I mean, I, I got into football. I can remember my first training session when I was like seven years old for a club called Clifton Rangers. And my mum and dad took me along. It was my dad's friend who was the manager. And it was a Saturday morning. I remember what I was wearing. I had this horrible 80s grey tracksuit on with like multicoloured piping down the sides. Oh, nice. And it was freezing, freezing cold on the side of it you know, a farm almost. And um, I just started playing football. And of course, then it wasn't small-sided games. It was 11 v 11, full pitch, full-size goals. You know, the keeper looked like a like a midget in goals. Um, and that's where I started playing. And and I was, yeah, six or seven years old. And that coincided then the following year with the uh, Italian 90 World Cup. I was born in 82. And obviously Ireland qualified for Italian 90. And that just, it just changed, changed me. You know, that was where my love of football came. I remember really clearly the, the, uh, the game against England. I remember Paki Bonner saving the penalties against Romania. Um, you know, and and that that that's where it all started. And I never looked back. Like, you know, I'm 40 years old now, and um, I've tried to leave football a couple of times later in my career because I thought maybe it was time to do something else. But it always, it just always pulls me back in. I've loved it since the minute I started, and I will probably till till the day I finish. And who was your favourite player in those Irish teams of 1990 and 1994? That was the, the golden age of Irish football, really. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, after 88, when I go back and watch that, you know, Italian 90, was was just the whole, the whole thing around it. But because I was a striker, you know, you'd look at you'd look at Al Quinn or you'd look at John Aldridge or whatever, you know, but Paul McGraw, when, when you look back now, of course, when you're a kid, you just support the team. You don't really think about the players in their individual positions and stuff. You just you know who they are because they've got the green shirt on. Mm. And then I think, you know, USA, USA 94, then when I'm 12 years old, was a bigger thing because Roy Keane's playing and Jason mm. McAteer is a young player coming through. And, you know, uh, obviously, uh, Ray Houghton scores the goal against Italy and all this sort of stuff. But as a youngster, really young, I, don't, I, I can't really say that I was looking up to any of the players when I was seven or eight years old because I don't really remember the players. It's just the shirts. Yeah. But then... As it progressed, of course, Roy Keane was the one that was an unbelievable player for us. Yeah. Um, but then Robbie Keane was obviously the big one. Then, as, as I got a little bit older, because I was a striker and he was a fantastic player, and you know, I've gone on to meet him and become quite good friends with him. So for me, that's the best story for me because you know, I, I know him now. I can I've been out with him and I've played a little bit of football with him and whatnot, and spent time in Dubai with him and stuff. So yeah, it's been a great love affair with him. 
Because over the last good few years, you've spent, we'll talk about your time in Sweden in a minute, but you spent a lot of time in Dubai working as an individual coach with players like Robbie Keane. What, what is it that stands out about Robbie when you work closely with him? You know, what stands out about him as a, as a footballer? The, the thing like Robbie and a lot of the top players and the, the people who get, you know, to, to play at those kind of levels and for so long is the, their understanding of the game is fantastic, but yeah. it's their work rate, you know, their work ethic. Um, you know whether whether they're um, how would you say whether they're you know a quiet sort of professional whether they're a loud professional or a social professional but when they get on the pitch the way in which they train and how serious they take training and the standards they hold themselves to and the standards they hold other people to is like it's just like nothing I've ever seen before like I sort of worked with Robbie when he went to India because um, mm. Teddy Sheringham the manager took Robbie with him and that was obviously the last stage of his career they came to Dubai on camp and obviously he was playing with Indian professionals, majority of, because you could only have so many foreigners. And it was very frustrating for him. You could see that because the level that they were at was absolutely nowhere near the level he was at. So it was constant frustration for him. Mm. Um, but the demands they put on themselves and how seriously they take it, the focus and how hard they work, it's, especially when you work on an individual level, because it's just you and them. When you work with a squad, you've got 20 players to look after. Yeah. But when you're working just for a period of time with one player, you really get to see like what makes them tick and how they work and how professional they are. It's unbelievable. Mm. I was working with Patrice Evra last week. He was he's retired a long time now, but he was I've been working I worked with him over about an eight year period, but he was work, um, playing in the Legends game for United against Liverpool last week at the weekend. Yeah. He's still calling saying, I need to train. We did a two week, two week or three week camp with him to get him fit to go and play that because he's still a professional in his head. That's he still amazing. wants to be better than everybody else. And that, yeah. that just tells you what it takes to be at the top and stay at the top. Because like I've seen one of those professional, actually one of those games that might have taken place whilst you were here between Manchester United and, and Liverpool. And some of the lads looked like they were just pulled off a stool in the pub. You know, was it, this is it? it was Andre Kanchelskis. It's like, holy Jesus, you look like you're selling used cars for a living kind of thing, you know? But this is, and this is it. And I said to, my, I said to Pat, I was like, why, why are you training for this? Because the English lads that are going to play in this game They'll all be like sat in the boozer and eating fast food and not looking after themselves. Not one day of training will be done. They'll just turn up and play. And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, but I need to, I need to, I need to be ready for this." I mean, they lost three one, but <laughs> it, was still, still, it wasn't because Pat was sort of found wanting, you know. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, there's, there's actually uh, another AIK legend, uh, Boyan Georgic. I'm sure you ran into him in uh, in your know, time Boyan, in Stockholm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so Boyan yeah. played in that game as well, and he was he also played in the Indian Super League in the very first season of it. So I remember him saying the same thing that you know you're playing with lads who don't have the same culture, the same work ethic, the same technical level. And, you know, you can get frustrated or else you can try to make them all better. And I think Boyan and the likes of Marco Materazzi and, and Robbie Keane were sort of trying to do that. But you sort of ran into a lot of the, the people from AIK through your work in Dubai. And eventually they offered you the chance to come here to Stockholm. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So just by chance, where I, where I used to work, um, they came, AIK came for camp. Uh, 2015 January during the pre-season mm. um, and that's where I met Henke or Henrik Aurelius and um, that's where it all kind of started they came 2015 and they came every year for five years and of course players in the off-season a couple of times would, would come over so I'd spend time with them in the, in the off-season um, and because of the way in which we looked after the clubs when they came to, to train with us at camp um, you know Björn Destrom when he was a sports director before and they'd invite me over and I'd, I'd come to the, to the derbies against Hugo and Hammerby and 
Um, you know, I came to Stockholm maybe seven, six or seven times before I actually moved there. I just built a relationship. And then when, when Bartos left to go work with the national team, Bjorn called me and he said, right, look, it's time. Like, we want you to come in. And I was like, brilliant, because, you know, I'd been an individual coach for five years and it was great. And I worked with some great players and, you know, I oversaw some camps with some fantastic clubs. And I learned a lot, but it was like, okay, I need the next thing now. I need to go back into full-time football. Um, and they offered me the chance to do that. And to be honest, I'd been offered a couple of jobs with a couple of other clubs, but didn't feel right. There was just something special about the relationship I'd built with AIK. And I really wanted to come to the club and it, it just kind of fell into place at the right time. Um, you arrived over here in Stockholm uh, for the first time to live here. So obviously the club is really good in terms of, you know, helping people out, sort you out with a car and a place to live and that kind of thing. How did you find living in the city of Stockholm in those first few months? Um, I mean, it, it, was, it was fine. Like, like I said, I'd been, I'd been a few times. So I, knew, I knew the staff that I was coming to work with and I knew the city a little bit. I'd lived in Norway before, so coming to Scandinavia and experiencing Scandinavian winter wasn't a problem. Mm. I got settled pretty quickly in Solna. Um, and what really helped was the fact that Mike Lawson, who was the fitness coach, you know, he mm. came a month after me and we lived in the same building. So for me and him, we'd been working together in Dubai for five years. So everything was quite familiar, you know, and, you know, when you work in football, it's so intense and so full on. You only really spend time at Calberg and then you're traveling for the games or you're friends for the game. So it just happens and you don't really get a chance to think about it too much. Um, you know, I like skiing, so it was great opportunities on days off to go skiing just outside Stockholm and whatnot. Mm. Um, and everyone was really welcoming. And when I saw supporters in the city, they were all really friendly and stuff. And yeah, it was quiet. I mean, you notice the change from winter, winter into summer, mm. but it was fine. I, I think I adapted quite well. And I've lived in four different countries now, so I think adapting to new environments just you just roll your sleeves up and get on with it. Mm. Um, was it what you expected to be Sean because sometimes you know when you're a sort of a well-respected consultant if you like that they deal with in Dubai you're working with individual players you're doing all those things but then working you know and being employed by somebody and being part of an organization that's a club that's a different thing so did it turn out the way that you expected in terms of the role that you had and the respect you were given and could you do the work you wanted to do there uh, yeah yes and no I mean like I was welcomed really well and um, I think because of the profile of the players that I'd worked with, there was an instant kind of level of respect from, from people in the club, from the players and from the management. I think with Rickard, he was a little bit, he was appreciative and respectful of what I've done, but I wasn't, I wasn't Bartos when I came in. So mm. it was a, there was a bit of a, an adapt, adaptive period where me and him had to figure out how we were going to work together because I came in with this kind of individual background because that's what they knew me from. But also I was a coach and I did come in very much as second assistant coach behind Patrick. You know, Rick and Patrick had a great relationship. And when I came in, it was like, OK, you're here. You're very much the assistant coach. We're going to do team training. But you're also bringing this thing of doing like, you know, rehabbing players back to the pitch and doing individual development for players. Mm. And we weren't really sure how it was going to work because I'd had the freedom before to work with players however I wanted. Whereas Rick was the manager and he was like, if this player's fit, I want him in team training. Mm. And I don't want him doing extra training because I want him completely fresh for the game. So there was a, a learning period of him understanding how we worked and that we weren't doing things over and above and exhausting players. And it took time, but it got there. Like I said, there was, there was definitely respect there. Um, he always had, you know, really good things to say to me when we had like one-to-one -one meetings and whatnot. 
so it was always okay but it was just that kind of period where we had to adapt and it was new for me because you know I'm going into a, a coach's room where they have a very set style of working a set way of working and they've all been doing it for quite a long time and I was quite new back into full-time football so mm. but it was it was fine I, I didn't feel like I was out of my depth and I didn't feel like I wasn't you know welcomed in any way or that it wasn't going to work out um and we just kicked on from there really it kind of got better and better of course until till the end and hmm. um, were you part of the this uh the training staff that that won the Swedish championship there in 20 was it 2018 18 no I, I was there that, that was the interesting thing was that and I've seen it people tag me and stuff on Twitter and whatnot because when they lift the trophy, I was there in the background behind Rickard. I was with Henke and with uh, Patrick. Yeah. But I wasn't officially part of the staff. I just kind of had a feeling it was coming. We'd had little conversations that Bartos might be going. And you know, and Björn had said, we want you to come in. So they invited me down for that to be part of that celebration to kick on into the pre-season. Excellent. So you got in there then, and then of course there was, you know, the Europa League campaign and there was, you know, you were here for, I think it was three seasons in total up to the end of last yeah. season. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 how would you rate Swedish football in your time here? You know, I mean, obviously you can't, you know, hold a candle to the big clubs like the Liverpools and the Real Madrids. They don't have the likes of the Robbie Keynes and the Virgil van Dijks that maybe you've worked with. But what do you think of the standard of Sweden and Norway where you worked before? I mean, I, I think it's a decent standard. It's, it's always really hard to compare. Like, for example, you know, if I was to say to you, if AIK were to go and play, you know, League of Ireland, I think we'd probably both agree that we'd be up there and probably win the league nine seasons out of ten, I would say. Mm. I'd say Shamrock Rovers would, would give us you know, a good game. Dundalk, when they were stronger, would give mm. us a really good game. But I think we'd win that league. But then, you know, would we be a great championship team? If I look at the Huddersfield Town team, you know, would AIK beat Huddersfield Town? I don't think so. I think six or seven times out of ten, Huddersfield Town come out on top in that. But mm. having said that, You've got Seb Larsson, played in the Premier League, played in World Cups, played European Championships. You've got Mickey Lustig, played Champions League football, won Scottish, you know, SPLs, World Cups again. We had Colbain, played in the Euros. So it's there's a, there's a big difference. You know, you look at Malmo, AIK, Hammerby to a certain degree, Ugon to a certain degree, really, really strong. But then when you look at, you know, your Bruce or Degvafosh, these teams, the lower teams, big difference in quality of players. Hmm. So it's... There are some great players. I mean, look at Alexander Isak, for example. You know, came yeah. up through a Swedish system, 17 years old, burst onto the scene, two goals against Ugard, and two years later he's playing for Dortmund. Now he's doing really well in Spain. So there are great players there. I think tactically, the managers and the coaches are very, very strong. Um, but I think there's a big, broad spectrum of quality in players. Um, mm. You have some really, really fantastic players, and obviously the best ones leave and go and play different countries. Um, but um, I would think, my opinion is that Swedish football is obviously stronger than Norwegian football from my experience. Mm. I suppose uh, Mr. Holland at uh, Dortmund and soon to be at Manchester City would probably argue the toss on that one. But Absolutely, and of course, we, yeah. we, we've seen what happened at Bodo Glimt the last few years. They've had an amazing football team with a bunch of lads who, you know, you'd have no idea who they are. And they're going on Jens Petter Haug and all these guys. Like, you know, but one of the questions I want to ask you, Sean, you've worked with individual development of, let's face it, world class players. You've worked with these guys. 
Belgium have done fantastic things over the years to a lesser extent England France obviously had Claire Fontaine if a small country like Sweden or Ireland for that matter wants to really be among the heavyweights is there anything they can do or is there just too much money and too many resources being invested in in Germany and in Spain and in Italy for them ever to catch up now but this, this is the problem like you know we've talked about this uh, you know in other forums and stuff before like Ireland historically have produced uh, have great players that have played for the country, but have they really produced those players? Because most of those players, you know, as you know, they've gone over to England 14, 15, 16, and, and their real progression has started when they've got to England. Mm. You know, for me, it's it's so crucial that Ireland has a strong league or a stronger league than it has now. And of course, the FAI are making big changes to try and improve youth football uh, in Ireland. So they have more of an academy structure for the clubs. And I think really it's like, if, if, if they can start a better structure younger and then try and keep the kids for longer. But I know it's really difficult. It's so easy to say it, but it's so difficult. If you've got a promising kid at 14, 15, 16 years old, they're going to go to England because mm-hmm. that's where the opportunity lies. But what Scandinavia does really well, and Buda Glimpse obviously succeeded with this or, or found favour with this, is that you know the rule that until you're 16 years old, you can only play for the club within a certain radius of where you were born. Mm. You know, if you look at Lindelof, for example, you know, he played for Vesteros. Yeah. And he stayed here. He had to stay at Vesteros until he was 16. He wasn't going to go play anywhere else. Mm. But then at 16, he's free to choose. And of course, AIK and Malmo, everybody wanted him and he goes off to Benfica. Mm. And I don't think you can, I don't think until, well, I wouldn't say it until, I don't think you can do anything to stop that because in Ireland, football or soccer as it is, will always be the fourth biggest sport, you know, behind the GAA and the rugby, yeah. you know. And until that changes or there's more money in there and there's more persuasion to stay, players are always going to go abroad. Mm. But I think, you know, from an Irish point of view, it's crucial that the FAI, if they can, and obviously it costs money and there isn't a lot of money knocking about, but have a real structured system with the academy so you get good coaching all the way through from the day you move, the, the, the day you start playing football and kick a ball, all the way through to the day you leave. And if that's 16, then at least you've done your bit. And you know you're going to get a good player and come, come back to play for the senior team. Did you find it weird that the domestic leagues here in Scandinavia are on sort of pay cable TV? You have to pay like, you know, 40 or 50 euros a month to watch the games. Whereas in Ireland, you could barely see the League of Ireland. I know the you can see them now. There's various different streaming services the last couple of seasons, but that's been the way in Sweden for, you know, 15 or 20 years. Did you find it odd that the games were so popular that people were prepared to pay that kind of money to watch their favourite club every week? I did. I did. I mean, um, when I was in Sweden, uh, sorry, when I was in Norway, I didn't expect it to be like that. But then I was like, yeah, of course, yeah, you know, you have to pay for you need uh, TV two or whatever it might be in, uh, mm-hmm. in Norway. So it was it was strange because I'm thinking, I didn't I didn't realize the league was that big, if you know what I mean. But then, yeah. so when I came to Sweden, it was obvious that yeah, okay, this, Discovery Plus, you're gonna have to pay your extortion amount of money every month to watch the games. But it's that was probably one of the best things with my experience there was that the fanatical supporters, especially AIK, it's unbelievable like how how people follow the football and they know everything. It's like, I always used to find it interesting that, you know, I'm a Huddersfield fan, but if the Huddersfield Town assistant manager walked past me in Huddersfield High Street, I wouldn't probably recognise him. But AIK fans, they knew even who the kit man was, the fitness coach, myself, like they, they know everything that's going on and they know everybody. There's an incredible dedication, you know, and in, even in places like Gothenburg and in Malmo as well, but particularly in the Stockholm clubs that somebody like yourself, you couldn't fucking walk down the street without somebody tapping you on the shoulder going, hey, what's going this on? You know? um, yeah, absolutely. 
Of course, we have uh, our, our pride and joy from the Riverside Ronaldo or the River Valley Ronaldo, as they keep calling him. Uh, <laughs> Zach Elbuzadi has arrived over here. It's, been, it's almost a year, actually, since he arrived here. Um, I got this call, this weird call one night that says, oh, AIK are looking at an Irish player. Do you know who it is? And I started to contact some people and I heard absolutely bizarre names were thrown at me, Sean. How, how did you find out? When did you hear that they were looking at an Irish under-21 international with a view to bringing him to Stockholm? It all started after a game. I think the game was against Kalmar and, um, you know, Bartos with his time with the Swedish under-21s and obviously me being an Ireland fan. We were just talking and obviously we were always thinking about players and who we could sign. He said to me, do you know Zach Elbazadi? And I said, I know him by name, mm. but I could and I've seen him play a little bit for the under-21s, but I couldn't give you a huge breakdown on him. Mm. And he's like, you know, I played against him a couple of times and he played really well against Sweden. I wonder... I wonder what he's up to and how he's doing. So, of course, quick Google search. You know, he's a Lincoln player. He's on loan at Bolton. And one of my friends is had a performance at Bolton. So conversation started to happen. Looked into it. How's he doing? Yeah, great kid. Really hard trainer. Hasn't got as many starts as he should have done. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So then we talked about his situation then at Lincoln. I don't think the manager fancied him so much. Brought in a player in, in the same position. So Zach was pretty much on the bench and that's why he went on loan. So we talked about it a little bit more and we said, let's get him over. Let's get him over and, you know, have a bit of a trial with him and see what he's like as a person, et cetera. Mm. So we did that. He came over about two weeks before I had to assign him. Myself and Mike did a training session with him one-to-one once everyone had left Calberg. Had a chat with him. I think the manager met him. They did a deal with the club and, and he signed for us. And, you know, I think it was a fantastic signing for us, for him and for Irish footballers. It certainly was, for because for years, I've been on my hands and knees on podcasts and in newspapers going, lads, look beyond England, because these opportunities are there. And then Zach takes one, and it worked out very, very well for him last season. Now, you know, he'd say himself that, you know, he, he's struggling to reach those heights again, but he'll certainly get back there, you know. But could I just ask you, Sean, when you were putting on that little extra training session afterwards, that must be a very tense, a very nervous situation, because essentially that's an audition for him. You were putting him through his paces. Was that a difficult thing for you to do? as an Irish football fan and as somebody who had aspirations and who played semi-pro football himself? I think, you, you know, you become so used to doing those kind of sessions. You realise that, you know, it's, it's always about the player. It's never about yourself. So it's just, you have to take the pressure away. When you meet him in the first second, you have to take the pressure away. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. You know, me and Mike, we sat with him in, in Calberg before we went up to the pitch. We had a chat with him about, you know, people we knew in football, mutual friends, etc. And made it very clear to him that, listen, they, we're not like going to be marking you down or filming this or anything like that. We just want to put you through your paces, mm. have a look at your touch. You know, we knew he was a quick player, so we just wanted to see that with our own eyes and have a look at his touch and his crossing ability and stuff. And I think you just have to build rapport with players straight away and just take the pressure off because you're right. You know, he's a player who is young. He's been over to England, gone back to Ireland on loan to Waterford, gone back to England hasn't really made it. He's probably a bit low on confidence or a little bit low on self-belief and you have to make him feel that he's special and that we want him and that it's all about him. Um, and he was great. And he was the great thing about him, and you've spoken to him, I know, um, he's a lovely lad and yeah. he was so thankful. You know, he's like, oh, thanks for doing the session. Like, no, don't worry about it. Like, this is our job, you know? Yeah. And um, when he left to fly back to, to Ireland, you know, he texts him, thanks again for the session. Hopefully I'll see you soon. And, you just want to work with players like that because they're so humble and hardworking. He was a joy to work with and he's a top, top lad. Yeah. 
And I didn't want to sort of go into, I don't want to reveal any of the boy's secrets at all, but you were telling me that he's always very interested to find out, to watch the film and to see what he can do better. And that kind of reminds me of what you were saying earlier in this conversation about, about Robbie Keane. Is that, you know, is that key to success that you have to be able to sort of put in that work and be self-critical and, and move on from, you know, from whatever mistakes you might make? Yeah, hundred percent. Like the, the best footballers are the ones that are most reflective because if you have a bad game and you just think, oh, I'll just put it right, I'll put it right next week or I'll play better next week. And you don't really think about it or reflect on what went wrong or why it went wrong or why you made certain decisions. You're always going to fall over. But like, you know, with Zach and a lot of the younger players, because they've been brought up in this, you know, sort of new way of football with analysis and data, sports science, and all this kind of stuff that comes around, you know. But Zach was great because after every game, if I didn't go to him, he would come to me. Can we go through my clips? Yeah. And it could be, a positional thing could be his first touch, could be how did he press, what was the angle right that he pressed if we were going into a high press, quality of his crossing, his position in certain mo- moments, what was his movement like, really critical and I think sometimes too critical of himself. Mm. But the fact that he reflects and he wants to see and he wants to learn and he asks questions, that's the sign of a really good pro, a really switched on pro, wants to learn and wants to improve. And that's yeah. what you get from him and a lot that's of the other younger players as well. Yeah, I suppose the last thing you want to see is a fellow who just sort of, you know, takes his bag and wanders out the door and never thinks about the game again, you know, just moves on to the next one, you know? But this is it. But, but there are players like that that do that. They just, they, they play the game, they go home, they have a day off, they come back in and they trade and they just go through the paces. But those are the ones that fade away or those are the ones that don't play very often or, you know, yeah. fall by the wayside. Yeah. Um, the unfortunate news came out towards the end of last season that after three years at AIK that uh, you wouldn't be uh, extending your contract with the club. Now, you know, if you want to tell me the whole story about how that came about, feel free to do so. I'm not going to press you into it. But were you disappointed uh, to come to the end of your time in Solna and Call Bay and at the Friends Arena? Uh, yes and no. I think um, by the time the news came out, I was, I'd made the decision that, okay, I'm going to go now. But... Um, you know, that'll go into the full story. I don't mind talking about it at all. But when it, when, um, if we go back to last June, I didn't, I didn't have it in my mind at all that I wouldn't be at the club at the end of the season. Like I wanted to stay. I felt we were doing really well. Um, between me, Mike, Kenny, Lucas, uh, Andreas, and Bartos, we had really good team working together. We were getting good results. And of course, we, we very, 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 very narrowly missed out, you know, on winning the gold. Um, and I spoke to Bartos and I said, look, you know, contract's open. What, you know, what, what are you thinking? And he's like, 100%, I want you to stay. So for me, that was enough. Mm. Um, but of course, he isn't the person who issues the contract. It's with the sports director. Yeah. Um, and as time went on and I didn't get any kind of response, I started to think, this doesn't feel like something's going to happen here. I'm a bit sort of concerned. Um, and as time went on, we had the baby, my wife, my wife and I had a baby in August and it ticked into September. And I was got to the point where I was a bit frustrated and I thought, I don't think I want to be here anymore because if I'm not going to be spoken to or informed of what's going on and time's running out, I've got a family at home now, I don't really want to be here. And then I eventually had a conversation in November, uh, just before the, you know, it came out in the press, um, whereby we talked and we decided, listen, it's best that we go, go our separate ways. And I think, you know, from a COVID point of view and uh, Peter Venberg coming back to the club as a technical director, things were changing, the structure was changing, and they probably wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction. Money probably wasn't 
what it was before COVID. And I think all these things combined and what had happened, um, it was just best to go. And that was for myself and for Mike. Mm. When I look back, I'm more, more disappointed or a bit more hurt, I think, because what I realised looking back is that the decision for me to go was probably already made a little bit in July and August. And I found myself a little bit more every month just on the outside or the peripherals and things that I used to do in depth I was doing little bits of and I didn't really see that at the time because I was you know new dad and we were trying to win the league it's only when you reflect at the end you look back on it but look it is what it is football is what it is and mm. it was a fantastic fantastic experience and I love the club there are some great people at the club the supporters are fantastic and I'll always cherish the time that I was there but it was just things happen and you just think you know what it's time to put this one to bed and move on I mean, I've noticed that anytime I talk to you, you always you refer to Oiko as as we, like still, yeah. you know. And the way you speak about Kenny Stam and the way you speak about Bartos and Zach and that, you know, clearly you still have a great sort of grow for the club and that. Um, when when you did get that decision in November, when you did say, okay, look, this is not going anywhere, um, was the the first thought always to go back to Dubai because obviously you have a reputation as an individual coach there among the likes of Robbie Keane and Van Dijk and these guys was or you know and to take this the right way or was that the easy way out? Was that a job that was always waiting for you to go back there? It's it's a bit of a mix to us because I, I never thought about coming back when I left the last time. I thought, okay, now I'm, I've finished in Dubai because you know I came here as a young kid when I finished playing football. I came back for the job that I had last time because I was using that as a springboard to get me, you know, a few more steps up the ladder. But I thought my time was done. And I was thinking when it got to that point, my idea was to go to Ireland, go to England or, or find another job in football somewhere. Mm. But I've always been very adamant that I wouldn't just take a job in football to stay in football. It had to be the right one. I had to have some kind of connection with the club I was going to or, a relationship or I was going to go as a head coach and be the guy at the top of the pile, you know? Mm. Um, so it was a small window. And obviously, like I said, we had the baby and it was like, okay, I'm going to try and find something. Um, but if I don't get anything, then do I go back to England and wait or back to Ireland and wait? Or do I go back to Dubai? Because mm. it's very easy for me to come back here and slip back into society and get back working again. And it's a nice lifestyle, mm. good money. It's good for the baby. It's good for my wife. Mm. And yeah, I didn't get anything that I really felt was grabbing me. And I just thought, I'm not going to take that job, like I said, just for the sake of having a job. So we came back here. We came back here and I got offered opportunities. I'm working as director of football for a new academy now. I'm doing the individual stuff. I'm doing a lot of uh, media stuff. And I'm happy doing that for mm. a period of time until the next right opportunity comes for me to go to be either an assistant coach with staff that I'm familiar with and I have a good relationship with at a good club or if I get the opportunity to be a head coach then I'll take the head coach job Do you still feel that you have a good sort of bond to Sweden then Sean? Could you see yourself in a Kalmar or a, a Gothenburg or a Sundsvall or somewhere like that? Do you think that your name might come up in discussions when those clubs, especially Gothenburg who are fucking in permanent crisis like you know, do yeah. you think that might happen <laughs> for you? I don't know, you, you just don't know I mean like I when I, when I moved to Norway um, I fell in love with Norway and with Scandinavia. So to go back to Sweden with AIK was, uh, was fantastic. I, I feel very at home in Scandinavia, like you've been there a very long time. It's great people, great city to live. I think the culture is fantastic. They deal with the seasons very well and they love the football, you know. So I would not be opposed to it. My wife might have other ideas, you know, but <laughs> but um, 
I uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it at all, but but nothing came up before I left, and it was too close to leaving Ayaka. It's like you said before, you know, I still refer to it as we and us, um, and I think to leave Aik and go straight to another club with the way I kind of behaved and portrayed myself, Aik, I wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. But of course, Patrick Yildefelk left, went to Jan Sherpin, and unfortunately he lost his job. Um, but I'm still in touch with Patrick. I'm very good friends with him. You know, maybe in the future, he he always said that we want to work together again, and I, you know, I I want to work with him again. So it's possible that you'd see me come back. But again, it has to be about the right job at the right time. Would international football be something for you after you know your? Uh, efforts at Italian 90 in 1994 I'm sure you could have done a few things better than Jack Charlton even at the age of 8 like you know <laughs> you know it's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny um, when you talk to people that work in international football they love it because it's, it's quite unique but they miss day to day club football yeah um, but to be honest with you yeah it, it's something that I would love to do, I think, further down the line. Like, if I was to lay out my dream pathway for you um, as a coach, you know, I'd be manager of Huddersfield Town at some point in the near future. And then if I could be manager of Ireland even further down the line, that would be the perfect career for me. Um, or even if I got to be an assistant coach with Ireland or something and, and play a, a World Cup qualifying campaign and go to a World Cup or a Euros, like, that's the dream as it is for many, many people. But... Um, that's probably a dream of Zach Albuzadi as well because he might get into the squad, the senior squad, a That's lot it. quicker if you're there. Hey, he'd be the first man on the team sheet, he'd be captain and he'd be on penalties. <laughs> he'd love you for that altogether. Sean, I'm going to talk to you probably again, it'll probably be in the very near future again, but in five years' time, if I was to call you up and ask you to do a podcast, where do you think you'll be then? I hope, I very much hope, I will be close to, or if not, back at Huddersfield Town, either an assistant role job or manager job. That's a, a pretty good aspiration. And do you reckon they'll be back in the Premier League by that point? I tell you what, Sunday's going to be a big game. Um, we have done phenomenally well to get where we are. Like, I think our squad costs less than a million pounds that we've assembled. We have the sixth lowest budget in the Championship. Um, so to finish 20th last year and then finish third this year and be in the playoff final is an unbelievable achievement in itself. Mm. Forest, really strong, hit great form the second half of the season, you know, after five games, they had three points, they were second from bottom. Um, so for them to finish where they've done, I think they're going to the game favourites, even though we finished third. Mm. We're not a do... great playoffs team. We've won, we've, we've won the playoffs twice in my lifetime, mm. three times, sorry, in my lifetime, but we've never actually won a playoff game. It's always been on penalties. Yeah. It, when we beat um, Luton last week, that was the first time we'd actually won a playoff game. <laughs> Well, look at it, the, end of the, day, the, the important thing is that you walk away from the tie as the, as the victors. But one of the questions I was going to ask you and I forgot about was, what can you do if you don't have the money of a Nottingham Forest or if you don't have the money of a Norwich or a Newcastle United? Uh, what can Huddersfield do? Where, How can they be successful in the Premier League if they only have a squad that only costs a couple of million quid when Chelsea's has cost billions over the years? Well, it's, it's really interesting now how football's gone. If you look at like Brentford, for example, Brentford are a great example of gone down the route of data. Yeah. Like the, they have the same owner as the owner of Midtjylland in Denmark, but yeah. they don't have any like standouts. That okay, they've got Ericsson now. They signed him later in the season, but they just gone down the data route and they trust it's that you know moneyball route that they're using baseball and the famous star in the film with Brad Pitt. Mm. They just follow the data. So I want a central midfielder, you know, who's um, you know ball interceptions in a game are high. He covers this amount of distance. Blah 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 blah. Pass completions of this. 
and just study the data and they'll find a player in France or from Africa or from Asia or from wherever it might be, lower league, and they see like a, a rough gem, if you like, someone who's got great stats, we can polish him up, we can get him fit, and he can do a job for us. And that's how they've done that. Um, of course, you get a big payday when you're going to the Premier League, but as a club like Huddersfield, you've got to be careful because you might be like Norwich and you come straight back down and you don't want players on big wages in the Championship because it kills the club. So you've got to be really careful. But data is, is huge now in football and there are a lot of teams that have been successful by it. And that's how Huddersfield have got to where they are. Mm. You know, if you look at Sobra Thomas, one of our wingers, we signed him from Barrow for next to nothing. Jeez. But they saw something there where his stats were good. It wasn't quite the finished article, young player. And then if you look at his stats now this year, I think he's top top in assists in the championship, um, top on goal, uh, creating goal-scoring chances, um, all retention in, in the opponent's half, all these kind of things. Stats are really high. Um, and that, that's how you succeed. That's how you compete with those clubs that have to spend the money. And do you embrace that sort of data side of it? Because, you know, that's, I'm thinking of my good friend Eamon Dunphy in Ireland, who's got, no, no, I can tell just by looking at player Phil. I can just tell by looking at him. But you would go for the data route as well as the, the eye test, would you? Yeah, I think for me, it's like it's all about finding a balance. And I think it's, you, you use the data to identify, but then you have to watch the player. and Do you see what the data tells you? Um because you can go mental on analysis, you can overanalyze and you can go too far, too far into it and too deep and kind of get lost because mm. football essentially is a simple game. And as coaches and managers, you can use data and analysis from games to help you in training, but you have to keep training and game plans as simple as possible for the players. Mm. Um, so I'm a, I am a big fan of it, but I wouldn't overuse it. Like I wouldn't overuse analysis. You still have to be able to manage the player you still have to be able to give them simple instructions that they can follow. Yeah. Because if you overload a player's mind with things before he goes out to play, everything just becomes confusing. And, you know, people people criticise players or take the make out and saying that they're stupid. They're not. They're actually very, very intelligent at a very high level. They can make quick decisions and multiple decisions in split seconds. Mm-hmm. But if you overload them too much, then it falls to pieces. Um, but it's a great tool and that's why it's very popular in football. So I do believe in it, but find the balance. Sean, I could talk to you about this all night and all day again tomorrow. Yeah, we leave it there for now, but we will catch up with you again towards the end of the season or maybe after the season when hopefully Zach Elbuzadi has won the Allsvenskan and is in the Ireland senior team and that you're there on the bench telling them what to do. But until then, yeah. my friend, take care of yourself and your family and we'll talk again soon. Pleasure. Thank you very much. There were no goals scored in 120 minutes of play. And now... It's to the last series of kicks in the penalty shootout competition. Silvio Lung has been beaten four times. Pat Bonner has been beaten four times. And it's now Romania's second substitute, Daniel Timofte, Dynamo Bucharest, midfield player, to step forward. But the sequence now is that if he should miss this, and Ireland's last penalty taker should score, then the match of the progress are Ireland's. Timofte against Bonner. The big man from Donegal has set it up for a victory. And who is stepping forward to take the penalty? This is the moment that he'll treasure for the rest of his days, I'm sure. But who's stepping up to assume the task, David O'Leary of Arsenal.
in his 52nd international appearance, David O'Leary is entrusted with the responsibility of taking the penalty that could send Ireland into the quarter-finals of the World Cup. This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there! That's 32 years ago now, 32 years since Italia 90, 32 years since Packy Bonner made that save from Daniel Tomofte, and 32 years since uh, Dave O'Leary stood up and smacked that penalty into the back of the net and gave us memories for life. And you heard what it meant to Sean O'Shea there as a young man growing up in an Irish family in England. And I remember I remember exactly where I was, I remember who I was with, and I remember the, just the joy of that night. And we'd had one night before that, you know, a few years before that, at, uh, two years before that at uh, Euro 88, when Ray Houghton famously put the ball in the English net and we beat them 1-0. But such magnificent memories. And I was on a podcast called the What's the Story podcast. If you haven't listened to it, have a listen. Uh, it's two lads from Ballybrack. Graham and Danny. Danny now lives down in County Leash, but they're just, they call up people. They get me on and they get a couple of, we have Paul Howard, the guy who's behind the Russell Carroll Kelly books and loads of other people. Pete Carroll, who you'll have heard on my other Armanist.com podcast. And we just talk about stuff and we were talking about those memories and how I don't really care if the Irish team never wins another game. I just wanted to do something brilliant. I just want memories like that. Now, you have to win games to be able to build memories like that. But look, at you know, it really is the glory, as Danny Blanchflower said. It's not boring the other team to death. Well, way over the time. Have you? There's no homes to go to, as they used to say in the pub. But look, at uh, I had those interviews in the can. I wanted to bring them to you both as soon as possible. Uh, Phil and Sean, two fantastic guys, and I'm really delighted uh, that they gave me their time. Hopefully, next week's podcast will be a little bit of an out and abouter. I'll get a chance to meet one or two people over Bloomsday or maybe at a Darrow Brian gig or something like that. And you never know, I might see you out there. Uh, and I'm sure if I don't, take care of yourselves and take care of one another. And sure, I'll see you somewhere along the line reasonably soon, anyway. Good luck. Mm-hmm.